I've heard it said that you can examine a man's checkbook and find out a lot about him. And I think there is a lot of truth in that because the word tells us that where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. But that's not really what we're going to talk about. I think there's another way you can find out where a person's at very spiritually, and that is their prayer life. I think if you examine a person's prayer life, you can find out a lot about where they are spiritually. If you have a a mature, productive Christian, usually you will find a person that prays. If you have a struggling, inconsistent, worldly Christian, if there could be such a thing as a worldly Christian, you would find a person that probably does not have a very strong prayer life. Not always, but in, in general, I think that's true. And today we're going to begin a three-part series on a specific prayer that we, I think, will gain a lot of information and knowledge from that we can apply to our lives. And it's the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, if you want to be turning there. John chapter 17. It is the most unique prayer in all of the Bible by far. It's it's a very unique passage because it is a prayer of our Lord and Savior, and it is the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in the Bible. I looked up as I began this topic and looking at this, I looked up many of the passages where Jesus prayed to get a feel for Jesus's prayer life. And there's a lot of things listed in the Bible that talk about Jesus praying. I, I found that he prayed before and during most of the special events in his life. In Luke chapter 3, when he was being baptized, it's, we find that he was praying. Luke tells us while he was praying, the heavens opened and the Spirit descended on him. He prayed at his transfiguration. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that prayer, it said that he prayed so earnestly that he sweat drops of blood. He prayed before important decisions in his life, such as when he chose the twelve disciples, he prayed. He prayed for others. We have examples of him praying for Peter. He prayed for children that were brought before him. He prayed before many of the miracles that he was about to perform. When he performed the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, we have Scripture telling us that he prayed. He prayed before he raised Lazarus from the dead. So we know that Jesus prayed often and at length. I think it's in Luke chapter 6 that we find... Jesus going up on the mountain, it said he prayed all night. But many times when Christ prayed, scriptures just tell us he prayed or just tells us a few verses about his prayer. But we know he prayed long, lengthy prayers because it said he prayed all night. But we don't have that recorded for us. But John chapter 17 is unique because it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. This is the one that Jesus in his sovereignty allowed to be printed for us to have and to study and to learn from. So I think it's a very important passage. It's sometimes called by Bible commentators as the real Lord's Prayer, as opposed to the one that we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be his name. That really wasn't a prayer of the Lord's. That was a prayer that Jesus gave as an example or a model prayer. In fact, If you go back and look at that in context, the disciples had just witnessed Jesus pray. That's what called them to think, oh, wow, you know, there's something about his prayer life. God, Jesus, teach us how to pray. So that was in response to actually witnessing him praying. 
So this prayer is more of a heartfelt, intimate time between father and the son in which we're going to see Jesus interceding before his father on behalf of others. And that's why a lot of times it's called the high priestly prayer and the high priest intercedes for others. And that's what Jesus does in this prayer. The prayer is can be broken down into three sections. Um, section one is verses one through five. And that's um, where Jesus prays for himself. Section two is six through 19, where Jesus prays for his disciples. And section three is where Jesus prays for all believers in verses 20 through 26. Today, we're going to look at the first section, the first five verses, and we will set the scene in the context and we'll begin to look at this um, in detail as Jesus prays for himself. But before we get into the words of Jesus, the, the passage begins by these words. It says in verse one of chapter 17, it says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, and then he begins this prayer. So Jesus spoke these things. First thing you have to ask is, what things did Jesus speak? And when you're starting to study, you have to ask a lot of questions. So what did he speak? So I would just glance back over the previous chapters to get the context of his prayer. And if you go back and just go back a few chapters to chapter 13, and we'll just skim through this real quick to see what the context is. Chapter 13, the heading in my Bible is the Lord's Supper. So that's where we're going to find this prayer ushered is he's going to be in the context of the upper room where the disciples have just had the Lord's Supper. Um, he's he's performed the humbling example of washing the disciples feet. He's told them that he one of them would betray him in chapter 13, verse 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Down in verse 14, though, he comforts them. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. So what Jesus is doing here at the, in the, this last few days of his ministry is he's telling the disciples that he's going to die. He's going to leave them. And he's someone of you going to betray me. He had said in chapter 13 that Peter is going to deny me. So these words aren't real. It's a solemn occasion. You know, he's he's telling them, I'm, I'm you know, you guys go back and remember where the disciples were in their thinking. They were thinking that he was going to bring in usher in the, you know, his kingdom here on earth. They had he had just a day or so earlier come into the town riding on the donkey, people waving and hollering Hosanna, and they were still expecting him to usher in the, the kingdom with him being the head, the king. He had cleansed the temple right after he got there. They saw, saw that. And now it's changed. He's telling them, again, more bluntly, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deny me. These are very solemn words. And that's, you know, I think that's the context that we start seeing. Verse 14, verse 26, he says, that he's, he then says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you a helper in chapter 14. You know, he starts to try to encourage them a little bit. Chapter 16, verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but the grief will be turned into joy. 
So he tells them all these hard things and then he tries to encourage them. Chapter 15 was about the the vine and the branches where he was talking about this connection between all believers and, and Christ and God. But this is the kind of things that when it says Jesus spoke these things, that's what it's referring to. This is what was going on. And right before Jesus starts to, to pray. So then it says, Jesus spoke these things. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. And the, he's lifting his eyes up to heaven. I was trying to read the different commentaries views on that. We think of praying. We think of bowing and shutting our eyes. But Jesus stood and looked up with his eyes wide open, looked up to heaven to pray. And that's one of the things that one of the commentators said that made a lot of sense was this showed that Jesus's clean conscience and his confidence before God. And he referred back to that story in the Bible about the publican and the tax collector and that, you know, one of them was beating his breast and wouldn't even look at the at the, you know, the Bible says he didn't even want to look up. Because he was ashamed of his sin. Well, Jesus didn't have that problem. He was clean, no shame, clean conscience. It showed his confidence before the Lord as he looked up. It also shows that heaven is a place. You know, he looked up to heaven. Heaven is a real place. It's not a figment of our imagination or something that's going to happen someday. There is a place where God resides, and Jesus looked up at it. Also think that from this that we can assume that this prayer was meant to be heard. Jesus didn't go off into a quiet area of the room. He didn't go up out of the room and into the garden. He actually prayed this prayer and it was written down for us. So it was meant to be heard by the disciples. It was meant to be heard by us. So now Jesus begins after this introduction. He begins his prayer. So let's read um, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. As I read those opening words, I asked myself, have I ever began a prayer like that? And the answer is definitely not. Father, the hours come, glorify your son. I would never begin a prayer, Father, glorify me. And we'll look at that in more detail. But Jesus' words are very unique. Um, because he was he was unique, but he begins by saying the hour has come. As I thought about that, I thought about all the times in Scripture that the opposite was said. That instead of the hour has come, my hour has not yet come. Many times that's what we read in Scripture. I thought back when he first started his earthly ministry and the wedding in Cana, when his mother came to him and said they're out of wine. And what did Jesus say? Mother, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. That was kind of one of the first responses. John chapter 2, verse 4 is that account. Then in John chapter 7, his brothers tried to encourage him to go to Judea. But in verse 1, he said he was unwilling to go to Judea because his hour had not yet come. That was in verse 6. 
So Jesus had a very acute awareness of his purpose and his father's timing for his purposes. Later, after the disciples had already gone up to Jerusalem, Jesus actually did go on up to Jerusalem. And in verse 30, it says they were wanting to seize him. But he said, no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20 says the same thing. Jesus had stirred up the Pharisees by what he was teaching in the temple. Because he had just said, if you knew me, you would know the Father. He was acquainting himself with God and they were out to kill him. But it says no one sees him because his hour had not yet come. Then in John chapter 12, we actually have Jesus in his own words explaining that a little bit. John chapter 12, verse 23 and 24 Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This was right after he entered Jerusalem. So he knew that this time was coming. And now, right before this prayer, brings us back to our words here. He said, That hour is now here. The hour is has come. What is the hour that he's talking about? About his death. And it's it's even more it is about his death, but it's the culmination of all that's getting ready to happen. Um, it's the culmination of his death, his, his burial, his resurrection. And when you think about that, the hour has come. Wasn't that what Jesus's life was all about? It was all leading to that point. That's why he could say the hour wasn't here yet. It's not yet time. And now he's saying now it is. This is the hour in which all of the prophets have been speaking about long ago. It was their fulfillment. Um, it was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that talked about the one who was going to come and was going to be pierced for our transgressions. This was the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sins of the world. The hour has come where Christ would defeat the last enemy, which was death. The hour was here where Christ was going to redeem a people for himself. This is the unfolding drama of God's plan of eternal life. And Jesus is now saying the hour is here. One of the commentators had a statement that I liked. It said, streams that had been flowing towards each other were about to meet. This was all the culmination of God's plan and Jesus' life were all coming to head at this time. And what does Jesus see fit to do as the hour draws near? He, He sees fit to go to the Lord in prayer. And as we look at this, we're going to see five truths revealed about Christ and his role in the unfolding drama of redemptive history or five truths about God's salvation and Jesus's role in it. And number one comes from verse one, and it is that it's all about God's glory. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The underlying theme of God's glory and salvation is what runs throughout this whole prayer. And even though the scholars break this prayer into three sections, with the first one being Jesus praying for himself, it's not him praying for himself in the way that we would probably think of praying for ourselves. Because, like I said, I don't normally, when I pray for myself, I don't usually pray, God, glorify me. But when you think about that, as Jesus said that, he didn't say that in a selfish way, did he? Because it goes on to say, glorify your son. Why? That the son may glorify you. So he's he's basically praying for God's glory to be shown through what's getting ready to happen 
to him. So the question is, how does God glorify Jesus, thereby glorify himself? Jesus knew what was coming. He knew about his death. He knew the circumstances, how horrible it was going to be. And it's this culmination of all of this that's going to bring glory to God. Titus 1, 2 says, Titus 1, 2 says, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, he's talking about this plan of salvation was being ushered in and it was promised long ages ago. And as I thought about that, I thought, who was the promise made to? There was who was there long ages ago? And the word, the phrase long ages ago basically can mean before time began. It's not just a certain measure of time. It's just a reference to basically an eternal time past. Who was the promise made to? Man wasn't around yet. And as I think about that, the only conclusion you can come to is that that promise was made basically between God and himself or God and the other members of the Trinity. Um, And so this, this plan that's being ushered in was a promise that God made to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, to Himself. And it, this, this is the culmination of that. God was going to make a people who was going to rebel against Him. And God made a plan to save some of them. That they would become the bride of Christ. And the working out of this promise is what brings glory to God. And it still brings glory to God even today when a sinner is saved. That brings glory to God even today. I love Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, which say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And all the words that are used there, predestined, foreknew, justified, glorified, all of those are in past tense. So they've already happened. Even though we haven't been glorified totally, it's as good as done because God doesn't lie. And he made this promise ages ago in eternity past. And it's as good as done. This is the plan of God, that he chose a people, that he was going to redeem them, make a way for them to be sinless by the righteousness of Christ, And he's going to pay the penalty of this chosen group of people. And as I said earlier, the disciples didn't get it. At this point, they still didn't really understand. Death to them was not going to be looked at as victory at this point. We have the hindsight of history to look back, but they did not. But in asking for God to glorify the Son, Jesus was saying to them, Go ahead, crucify me, bring about what's coming so that this will bring you glory. I'm always amazed at the singleness of purpose that Christ had. He knew this plan. He was always walking in step with God and his plan, and he wouldn't detour from it no matter what anybody tried to get him to do. He always was walking in complete singleness of purpose according to God's plan. And as I thought about that, I challenged myself, how am I doing in this regard? Is my life bringing glory to God? Is the motivation behind my prayers, even my prayers for myself, is it about bringing glory to God? Because that's Jesus' example to us. I'm ashamed to admit that many times that's not the case. So 
the question of application is, how do we bring glory to God? Jesus lived out his life in total agreement with the glory of God. Everything he did was for the glory of God. How do we, from an application standpoint, how do we examine our lives and see if we're bringing glory to God? This is open for discussion. Obedience. That's actually, you can narrow it all down to that. But it's not just obedience as in the Pharisaic obedient. It's the heartfelt obedience that we want to do that. I started listing some things that I thought would bring glory to God. I thought about things like having joy in my life when I'm going through difficult times. I thought about, you know, as we go through trials, how the Bible tells us to to have joy, knowing that uh, testing our faith brings endurance. I thought about trusting God when we're having trouble with our finances or whatever, to how trusting God for that and not relying upon man and our own abilities, but trusting the Lord. I thought about when we share the gospel, when we evangelize our neighbors, that we love them so much that we share the gospel with them, that that brings glory to God. Loving our enemies, which is hard to do. You can't really do that unless you have the Spirit of the Lord within you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But all of those things are basically what Brian said. They are things that the Bible tells us to do. So it's, it's an obedience issue. Jesus was the obedient one. He was in complete obedience to everything that the Father asked him to do. So the number one truth we see in this text about Jesus' role in God's eternal plan is that it's all about God's glory. The second truth that we see in Christ's role in the story of redemption is verse 2. And it is that Christ has the power and the authority to grant eternal life. Verse 2 says... Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus has power and authority to offer eternal life. God granted it to him. When you think about power and authority of Jesus, what comes to mind? What examples in Scripture do you think of when you think of power and authority that Jesus demonstrated? Calming the storm. He had complete power over nature. He could calm the storm. Raising Lazarus from the dead. He had the power to raise a man from the dead. No one could ever do that. Anything else? Walking on the water. It's amazing. Healings. He healed people. Forgiveness of sins. Authority and power over all nature. Power to forgive sins. I thought about the time when he cleansed the temple. And... The Pharisees and the rulers came to him and said, by whose authority can you do these things? Even when he taught, he taught by such authority that they had never heard before. You know, they, I've heard Steve say it many times. You know, they used to say, you know, you formerly said this and this, but I say to you this. And he was basically saying, I have more authority than what you've been saying, you know, and he basically retranslated the way they were understanding Scripture. But he always demonstrated his power and authority. And this text tells us, though, that the power and authority that was given him over all flesh was that he may grant eternal life, that he would give eternal life. That's what his authority and power were granted to him for, was to be able to grant eternal life. And one of the things that I had written down his display and his authority was John chapter 10 verse 17 and 18 when Jesus actually showed power over 
death, even in his death, the disciples were going to see him crucified. They were thinking, you know, like I said earlier, they were thinking things weren't going really well. But Jesus, even in his death, was displaying his power and authority. He said, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. So we see here in Jesus's great prayer, we see that he has a clear, confident awareness of the power and authority God has granted him in dispensing eternal life. But it's to a special people, right? It's not to everyone. It's to the ones that the father has given him. Our text says that all whom you have given me. So there is a special people that he and he has power over all flesh, which also means can a dictator stop him? Could Pharaoh stop him from getting his work accomplished? No one could stop him. He had power over all flesh to accomplish the task of giving to eternal life to those whom he had been given from the Father. In verse 6, he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. In verse 9, he's praying for them. He clarifies who the them are. He says, I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me. So this authority and this power was granted to Jesus to use for bringing this chosen people to eternal life. And I think that is a very comforting fact to me that Jesus has all of that power and all that authority and he uses it to bring the ones that God has given him to eternal life. That's the second truth that we see about Jesus in this First five verses, the third truth that we see about Jesus in his his role in redemptive history is that eternal life is a relationship with God through Christ. Verse three, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This thought about knowing God, you know, as I thought about that and meditated on that. You know, we know that God knows everything about us, every little detail of our life. But can we really know God? This verse tells us that that is the definition of eternal life, that they may know you. As I thought about that, though, other scriptures came to mind. I was reminded of Isaiah 55, 9, where it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I thought about, can we really know God? I guess the question is not no, but can we understand God? The answer to that is no. We can't completely understand God, but can we know him? This is probably not a good illustration, but as I thought about this, I thought about my relationship with my earthly father. And I thought about how, as a youngster, I would used to go to his office sometimes, and he worked for state government. He was over the data processing center. And there's a few younger people in here that won't have an idea of what I'm talking about. But if the older ones will know that data processing and the computer systems are not like little desktop or handheld computers back in those days. They were big wall-mounted machines that went all the way around, the, probably the room the size of this area. And there was machines that went to the ceiling all the way around it. And there was people with key punch cards that were punching things and I can still remember the noise that went on in that building in that room and it had to be really cool to keep them from blowing up because of the heat and it was the things that a little computer would do now but in the day but I remember specifically having this thought after one of my trips to my dad's office was 
I'll never be that smart. I'll never know how to do what he does. I can remember thinking as a little child, he knows how to fix the car. He knows how to pay bills and to work and to make money and do this and do that. And, and I thought as a little child, I'll never be that smart. I'll never know how to do that. And kind of that in some ways, that's like our ability with God as a child. Now, I also know that I was a very young child when I thought that because when I was a teenager, I thought I knew a lot more than him. So I knew I was a small child when I thought that. But that's kind of our relationship with God. We may not know everything about his ways. We may not be able to understand limited atonement and some of these deep doctrinal truths to the extent that we want to to know them. But we can know the things that are important. I knew my dad loved me. I knew my dad was going to take care of me and provide for me and I could trust him. And if I needed to talk to him, he would talk to me and he would give me counsel and advice. In the same way, we know that our heavenly father does those things and we can go to him anytime we want to. We may not understand all the deep things, but can we know him in that way? Yes. And not just can we. This is eternal life that they may know you. The definition of eternal life is the people that have that knowledge, that intimate knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. It's imperative. And it's not just eternal life in quantity. When I think of eternal life, if somebody asks me what is eternal life, my first thought that might pop into my head might be living forever or being in heaven. But aren't sinners going to live eternally? Yeah, just not going to have the quality of life. Um, Eternal life is not just about a duration. And when does eternal life start? When a person accepts Christ. So it starts here on earth. We are already in eternal life in one sense. Death is not necessarily death. It's just a transition to another world for us, which is Christ's presence in our life. And we now, through the Holy Spirit, have part of that revealed to us here on this earth. Eternal life begins while we were still here on earth because it's a quality of life as well as one that lasts forever. Many of the religions of the day that these words were penned consisted of multitudes of God. And many today make the claim that there are many ways to eternal life. There are many roads leading to God. You hear that a lot nowadays, even in what some people call Christian churches. They're not Christian churches, but you hear that even taught in some of those. But this verse tells us that there's one true God and you come to him through Jesus Christ. And the word used in Greek for no, you probably are aware that that is a word that means much more than intellectual knowledge. It's a relationship. It's actually a word like It was used in context of Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. It's an intimate relationship type of phrase. So Jesus reveals in this prayer that eternal life is all about God's glory, that Jesus has the power and the authority to grant eternal life, that the essence of eternal life is a relationship. And truth number four is that Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements to offer eternal life. Verse four. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus was able to say it was already done because he had already done the work of being sinless. He was at the point he was getting ready to be crucified and he could say that the work was done. He was already looking forward to his death. 
He fulfilled every aspect of the law, every prophecy concerning him and his life, every promise the Father made concerning him. His life was consecrated to one thing, living out in complete obedience the Father's will for his life. And that obedience is what makes possible eternal life for all those the Father has given to him. It was for all of us. In thinking about the application of this truth, I was humbled by the awareness of how so many of us fail to live a consecrated life. A life devoted to glorifying God and living out the purposes God has intended for us. I thought about the bumper stickers that you see sometimes. It says the one who dies with the most toys win. I thought about our culture and its infatuation with entertainment and sports. The hours and hours spent trying to make ourselves happy about our strong pursuit to satisfy the flesh, the emphasis that our culture puts on sex. I thought about those things, and then I thought, that's not the world, that's in the church. If you really get down and dig into the problems, and I'm involved in the counseling and ministry here, so I see it. There are people who are Christians who are attending church every week who are really struggling with these issues, and they're not living a holy and consecrated life. They're not living their life for God's glory. They're struggling with the, with the flesh. That's our example. Christ is our example. We look to him. He alone lived that perfect life. We know we're not going to live it, but we should be trying and striving to live a holy and consecrated life. But I thought about the fact that Christ, when he got to this point in his life, he could look back and say he didn't have a, a sin that he needed to repent for. He had no regrets You know, how many of us have regrets with relationships or whatever it might be? Jesus Christ had none of that. Everything that God wanted him to do, he had done perfectly. And that was necessary for him to live the sinless life and to be our unblemished lamb. And he had met all of those requirements. That's truth number four, that Christ fulfilled all the requirements needed to offer eternal life. And because of that, that leads us to truth number five, verse number five. Christ deserves to be exalted. He says in verse five, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Having accomplished all the work that the father had given him to do, Christ now is saying, you know, Take me back to heaven and and put me back in the place where I was before. And when you stop and think about where Christ was and the glory he had, it's a little bit unimaginable to think about the glory that Christ had in heaven and what he gave up. Philippians chapter 2 is a great passage. In fact, let's read that. We have a couple minutes. Philippians chapter 2, starting, let's start reading in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, because of his obedience, because of 
living his life in that sinless fashion and becoming obedient to the point of death. He satisfied all his work that needed to happen in order for us to be redeemed. And because of that, Philippians chapter 2 says us that God's going to exalt him back to that position of glory again. So when Jesus is praying that he send him back to glory, he's not praying that in a way that is selfish. He's praying that in a way that is in line with the Father's plan for his life, that he's accomplished his work, and now he'll be glorified by being in heaven. And one of his jobs in heaven is to continue to intercede for us. What you're going to see in the next couple of lessons is that he begins to intercede for the disciples, intercede for us as all believers, and that's where Jesus is today, interceding on behalf of us. When I thought about this application of this, this point, because I tried to, to dwell on application for everything, how can we take application from this fact that Jesus is now in glory? Well, he was looking towards a hard, cruel death. And I don't think, you know, he wouldn't have sweat drops of blood had it been something that was going to be easy. One of the ways I think he got past that was he knew the glory that was awaiting him. And I thought about martyrs in the persecuted church that, you know, today, how do they endure things like that? There's only one way they can endure that and still be obedient and joyful and, and be able to give God the glory. It's because they are looking towards heaven. They're living their life looking towards eternity. And I think that is one of the things that's hard with the American culture and the American church is it's our life has been so prosperous and so easy that we don't always look towards the glory of eternity. But Jesus did, and I think it may come to that point here in America at some point, but we should still do that even if our life seems easy by the standard of some of the other rest of the world, if we really had a grasp of what eternity was like and the glory that was awaiting for us, I think we could all live in light of eternity. And that's, I think that's the point of application that I made here was that I need to be living my life in a way that looks towards living out God's glory here now, but also anticipating the glory that is to come. And it is through that relationship with Jesus Christ alone that gives us that. So the challenge to myself as I went through this lesson was really about the glory of God and the glory that we share through his Holy Spirit, that we should be shining his glory into the existence all around us, looking towards that time when we were going to be redeemed completely and be sharing completely in the glory of God through his son, Jesus Next week, we will look at his prayer for the disciples. And then the following week, we'll look at the prayer for us as, as we are included in all believers. But as you think about that this week, think about the fact that how comforting it is to know that other people are praying for you. And then think about this. Jesus Christ prayed for you and is praying for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to have the words of Jesus in scripture that we can go to and to learn from, to be convicted by, to be encouraged by. Father, may this time in the word this morning be encouraging to us to know that that your son Jesus is praying for us and even now is interceding on our behalf, Father, that we know that he has the power and the authority to be able to grant eternal life to all that believe and believe, Father, by a trusting belief in, in him. And we pray that our all of our relationship with him would be strengthened this week as we 
draw close to him, knowing that he is the only one who has that power and authority. And, Father, we just pray that you would help cultivate a deeper knowledge of yourself and Jesus this week. In Jesus' name, amen.